Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Bukaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Season 15 of Bukaloo begins with Arya's farewell to Jack and Hagar. Lots of Jack and Hagar talk. You can probably hear in my voice that I'm getting over something gunky. However, my conversation with Podrig was recorded before I was sick. So you don't have to hear this voice for the next hour. Scheduling going forward, I have decided that in order to continue the marathon of a chapter-by-chapter reread, I'm going to do eight weeks on, four weeks off. So each season will be about two months long, and then a longer break between seasons. Make sure you check out all of the fine work the Bald Move Boys are doing, baldmove.com. I am absolutely enjoying their coverage of Shogun right now. If you like Game of Thrones, you might give that show a try. And then, of course, tune in to hear the Bald Move Boys talk about it and consider joining the club. Without further ado, here is Professor Podrig McCarran. This Arya chapter, I felt like could have been three different chapters. A lot <laughs> happens. Yeah, this. especially compared to the previous one or two, which were quite short and, you know, often like just a given night or two days in Harrenhal. And then here suddenly a massive amount happens just between from where it starts, uh, just in the aftermath of Weiss's death to like ending with basically Harrenhal completely overthrown. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I, I don't know if... Like sometimes I wonder about these pacing issues. I wonder if it's like, okay, well we've we've kind of run through the Heron Hall machinations. He spent a lot of time up until this point in this book detailing all the various power dynamics in Heron Hall, and then it kind of feels like all of a sudden it's just the, the thing totally flips. And uh, but I guess that's kind of. That is one of the problems with Heron Hall. It's it's constantly <laughs> flipping ownership from one one person to the next. And this is late in Arya's. This is like her second last chapter as well, isn't it? He does like to do this where they've like their second last or last chapter. Uh, an immense amount happens, and then like even towards the later to last maybe quarter of a book, you get like an immense amount happening, and then you get like sort of one or two chapters kind of winding down. Mm. Yeah, that's right. And I feel like we are building to the, the climax uh, of this particular book. Um, the, and relating to interesting ways to take a castle, right? You know, we, we sort of have these two castles taken by treachery, Winterfell and um, Harrenhal. And then we are going to eventually experience the siege of King's Landing, which... Re- you know, retains its ownership because Stannis is going to just try to, you know, go head on and go over the wall. He's not going to use treachery. Mm. Um, but he did use treachery to take a storm's end. Hey, he's not above treachery. He's, he's not, just he's not above it for sure. Yeah. All right. So I guess, I guess what's the point? The point is that if you want to take a castle in, in this world, your go-to move should be treachery. Well, you, because if you try to take it head on, you probably won't take it. But Harrenhal and Winterfell are extremely poorly defended, right? So, like, Ari makes the point in this chapter that from the thousands of men who were in Harrenhal, now there's only about a hundred, 
Um, so no gatekeepers are asking anything and same at Winterfell like everyone's gone and then not only is everyone gone there's a couple of people still there and then they go out to deal with um, uh, to deal with another problem and that's when uh, everyone's taken is taken from them whereas in King's Landing everyone is still within it that's right but uh, you know it's it's interesting because that's the one where you would think that there would be treachery because everyone inside that castle is starving Mm mm-hmm and so that's that is what Tyrion is concerned about, and yet you know here we have Stannis who's decided to go right over the top of the wall. Okay, let me read, let me read my synopsis, which is going to be rather lengthy here. After a brief visit with Hot Pie, Arya sneaks out into the night to spy the return of Vargo Hote and his brave companions. In his train, he's brought supplies. He, a hundred Northmen as prisoners and a black bear in a cage. Arya recognizes the hostages and pleads with Gendry to help her set them free. Gendry refuses. Reflecting on her newfound courage, Arya departs for the godswood to practice her swordplay. Walking to the heart tree, her prayers to the god turn to complaint. Jacken appears and tells her to name her third name and takes an oath to prove his honesty. She whispers the name Jack and Hagar and tricks him into helping her with her plan to free the Northmen. Once the Northmen are free, Arya takes back the name and agrees that the debt has been paid. Jack and then magically changes his face and hair. They part ways, but he gives her an iron coin and teaches her the phrase Velar Mogulis. The next day, Ruse Bolton arrives to take Harrenhal and makes her his cup bearer. Podrick, what do you want to talk about first? There's, we could go a million directions. I mean, I suppose I mainly want to talk about Jack and Agar again. But uh, before I do that, let's just talk about frustration and how frustrating Arya chapters are. <laughs> <laughs> okay, tell me more. So... I mean, I think a lot of people I know who are into the series are also big Arya fans, and both of us are fairly self-professed Arya fans. Yes, yes. And uh, her story just is quite frustrating. Like, she's very rarely sort of liberated to do her own thing. She's constantly, uh, um, well, not necessarily captured, but in this book she's captured a lot and sort of can't do very much. So, like, from the beginning of this book, she's... uh, She's with Yaren, things are okay. Then they're captured by Emery Lorch and goes to the mountains men and then Harrenhal and then uh, things just never go well for her. In the next book, then she, you know, they're free again briefly. Then they end up um, with the the Brotherhood Without Banners and then uh, eventually with uh, the the hound and every time you've all these hopes for what's going to happen. You hope, that, okay, she's in the Riverlands. She's going to meet Nymeria again and this doesn't mm-hmm. happen. And yeah. then you think, okay, she's going to meet one of her family. And then even the hound brings her to River Run. Or not to River Run, to the twins. And <laughs> you're like, oh, finally. <laughs> and then yeah, it's like, oh, and at like, the gate, right? And So it never goes the way you want it to. And then in the midst of all this, in this book, she gets a, a all-powerful murder genie who can kill any three <laughs> people. And she wastes all of her three wishes. Yeah. Every one of them is utterly useless. And the last one where she thinks she's tricking the genie and being massively clever and helping the Northmen 
take Arnaud. Well, it actually didn't matter because uh, Vergahol had already agreed for us both to do this. Yeah. So she it up slightly. Yeah. So uh, it's very frustrating that um, often when she has access to something, it doesn't get used in a way that's... No, it yeah. Gets, she learns a lot. Yeah, I was going to say that it sometimes it's frustrating because she is somewhat powerless. You know, yeah. she's sort of a powerless character. Uh, but whenever she sort of gets to the point where she might be, you know, have an avenue toward power, it's it's almost immediately taken away from her, right? So she's she might have the power of a Stark because of her social class, but then her father's taken away. Or, she, you know, she... He, he, you know, he assigns to her the the greatest swordsman and all of Bravos to train her, but then Sirio is taken away. Mm. Um, you know, she she could be a warg, right? She could she could have magical powers through Nymeria, but then Nymeria is taken away. And here well, she like she has the, the death genie. <laughs> What's that? She is a warg, though. Well, right? she is right, right. But she she can't she um she can't uh use her, that power to get her out of any of these yeah. uh, binds because she's, she has to send her wolf away. Right. Mm, yeah. So, and in this case, yeah, she's got the death genie, but you know, as soon as she, it's almost like as soon as she has the death genie, the death genie's gone. And, uh, and, and so now here she is, and she says, you know, she, for a while she was a wolf, but now she's a mouse again. Um, so, yeah, she's always just about to touch either a key homecoming or a key avenue toward solving her own problems by way of magic or something like that. But Martin keeps always keeps her just like an inches away from achieving any of that stuff. The payoff better be mighty. <laughs> <laughs> So, all right, let's talk about what is Ruse Bolton, who doesn't show up until the very end of the chapter, and we'll we'll have to rewind a bit here to cover the mm-hmm. rest of this, but what is Ruse Bolton's plan here? Because it's clear by the end of it that he's got some kind of arrangement with Vargo Hote, right? Yeah, it's so I think, and even the fact that the Vargo Hote was planning and was getting Amory Lorsch's men drunk that night does kind of imply that they were already planning and doing it fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and but then Arya sort of, you know, sped up the whole process. Uh, it's unclear what his plan is, but it it is clear that the Northmen are not injured. So, um, you know, Arya wonders at one point why none of them have their feet chopped off or feet or hands chopped off. I noticed that too. Yeah. So, um, and she thinks that when she's in the Godswoods, so not at the time. So that's probably the first time if you're a first-time reader, when you first come across this, you think, oh, God, they've captured some Northmen. You mightn't think too much of it. But then uh, after that scene, she wonders this, why their hands and feet aren't chopped off. Then um, when yeah, she notices gone, it as strange. I mean, and even Gendry says, you know, he might chop off your feet as he does or something like that. Yeah. So it's like he's known for doing this. and But then Arya reflects, well, how come none of those Northmen had their hands or... Yeah. chopped. 
and they keep bringing it up like with Pia it says she says if she doesn't go soon Virgo will chop off her feet yeah Hot right. Pie and Gendry both mention it so this it's not like you know it's just in the background it's like constantly this is the threat and this is the threat we, we used to give her as well that Virgo will chop off her feet um, so that she wonders that and then when she's on the prison she wonders she seems none of them seem, seem quite uh, seem quite so badly as wounded as they were when Virgo hooded Marshall through the gates of Hernhall so they were clearly you know it was an act yeah um, so um yeah so the, the plan glover didn't know the plan right <laughs> so he says this uh, soup that was a clever idea i did not expect that it was that lord holt's idea so um they clearly had a plan to take over the castle they just hadn't uh, figured glover didn't know how they were going to do it they're just like at some point or we maybe there it. was a different avenue like okay at daybreak i'm gonna let you free and here's how it's gonna happen and it doesn't happen that way yeah but he recognizes that it was it was a clever idea i don't know i mean it's clearly it's clear because of when Bruce bolton shows up that it was supposed to happen soon right yeah otherwise why get them drunk uh why does Bruce bolton show up when he does so, with that in mind, Arya's sense of urgency is misplaced. Yeah. She thinks it's up to her to free the Northmen. In reality, if she had done nothing at all, the Northmen are going to be freed within hours or something like that. Yeah, basically. It did give her... It also drew a lot of notice to her because... Um, Shagwell is calling it weasel soup and somehow it's kind of unclear how this gets totally attributed to her right because uh, she was involved with three others bringing the soup in uh-huh. um, but they call it weasel soup and uh, in the next chapter I think uh, was is it Annabelle or something she uh, berates Arya for letting them in and, and Gendry and Hot Pie are both very dissatisfied with her for causing this um, which as you say would have happened anyway um, but it's surprising that it that it's attributed to her by everyone there, and that makes you sort of think like she's drawing a lot of attention to herself, which is quite dangerous. So I'm glad you mentioned Shagwell. If if you are listening to this and you're like, who's Shagwell? Uh, in the books, there's a fool at Harrenhal, and his name is Shagwell, and he kind of fits the little tropey thing that. Martin likes to do where these fools have some kind of connection and know certain information that other people don't know. And sometimes it's related to something magic, right? So when Patchface talks about the, you know, the the creatures under the sea or whatever, we would connect this with the deep ones and uh we've got other fools in the story who have a certain kind of information that they are able to relay to the main characters. In this case, Shagwell the Fool happens to know somehow that it was Arya's plan all along to take the soup down to the prisoners and then uh, kill the guards and free the Northmen, right? Basically, yeah. And Martin never tells us how this, how he knows this information. But it does fit into this little trope where the, the fool in the room gets to say whatever he wants to say, and he happens to know the truth, but no one really takes him seriously because he's a fool. But in this case, I guess people do take him seriously because they start to look at Arya funny. 
Yeah, so I think Arya suspects that it was um, Robert Glover who says about the weasel soup. Uh, but uh-huh. also um, when when she meets Roose Bolton, Jack and Nagar is about to introduce her and she interrupts saying, I'm Weasel. So um, I guess that was, even without Shag, well, it's possible that, you know, the four of them would have been seen as the people. Yeah, who but were, Robert you know. Glover, I don't think, it, he doesn't know who came up with the plan. I mean, she does, she's not very active downstairs. She just happens to be downstairs. It's true, with soup. <laughs> and yeah. so I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not sure. It's not said, and eventually, Shagwell spreads this rumor. Yeah, so it becomes known, I suppose. Yeah, he uh, he hacks off two of their heads and has them talking to each other, saying, uh, how, "How did you die?" And then it says, "One from Weasel Soup." Now that was. I wanted to note that because Martin does at times like to throw in a little homage to bands he likes. Ah. And so I think that this probably is a, a, a little wink to the talking heads. I didn't cop that. Very clever. So he every now and again, he'll just he'll throw something like that in there. Uh, so I, I do, I, you know, if, if he if he hasn't done it, if he hadn't done it seven other times, I wouldn't think of anything about, you know, actual literal talking heads makes sense all right let's talk jack and hagar so many questions you kind of think you're getting familiar with this character and then all of a sudden he just throws everything you knew about him out the window (laughs) okay say more what was he doing like what why was he so terrified when Arya named him when literally after he pays his death uh-huh. he says now this man must die and then jack and agar is no more why the the thought of him terrifying him so much um i guess because he's got like you know a mission he doesn't have he doesn't have time for the faceless man to die but surely for him jack and agar dying is no scarier than uh what he says later on in this chapter about jack and agar dying so there's two ways to read this i guess three ways to read it one is this is all kind of um subterfuge what he really wants is to get Arya to come with him to uh bravos and so he's kind of playing hard to get but really he does want to befriend her and so he's he's getting her to play along so that would be one way to look at it another way to look at it is he knows that she is naming him by the name he has said and so her intention is very clear and so he's going to have to honor that, even though maybe it's not his real name, he's going to have to honor that by committing suicide. Um, I think that that's maybe the one that I like best. But the third option would be that at the end, uh, he's kind of joking. You know, he's kind of, he, in other words, he knows that dying is not the literal way to interpret what he's about to do. He's about to change his face by magic. And he's using the term dying kind of in jest. Well, Jack Nagar is dying, right? Like, or, you know, he no longer is using that face. That Presumably name. Jack and Hagar, if that's the, if that's the name that actually belonged to that face once upon a time, that guy's dead. 
Yeah, so then that was another question I have. Is he like, you know, already, is Jack Nagar that original man, is he Larathe who's dead and in the Hall of Faces? Or was he someone in the Black Cells who a faceless man goes, ooh, I'm going to, this person will fulfill my next job. So, and then took over this, maybe Larathe sellsword who was in the Black Cells. So, as he's, after he changes his face, Arya notes, and this is Arya's, you know, limited perspective, but she says this, the stranger walked away in Jack and Hagar's clothes, meaning that the man is different. He, that guy's no longer Jack and Hagar. Yeah. Uh, if that's the way that we're supposed to read it. So, and I, I honestly, like, I've thought about this a, f- a few times thinking, well, is he even L- the Rathi? Because maybe that's just the voice of that particular visage he's donned. I presume whoever Jack Nagara was is because he's, you know, got the half red, half white hair um, and that accent. But the faceless man is not. But the faceless man is not. So really, if you, if you we dig deep enough, we know nothing about this faceless man. Which is, uh, I guess, what the faceless man would want you to believe, right? There are no one. Right, right. That's well said. So what do you think? Why do you think he looks distressed when she names the, you know, the name Jack and Agar as the third name? I guess it's because he clearly has some mission. And I suppose it means, yeah, I initially would took it to be the literal... Uh, that faceless man has to kill himself if he is to do this because the red god is owed one more life and it's got to be his life. Uh, and then later when he says a god has his Jew and now a man must die and then ends his visage, it, it's not the same. But it's just it's quite confusing because um, how he goes on about how name anyone and I will kill them. And then in the same uh, in the same discussion he says some men of many names weasel ari aria so Mm -hmm. i I wasn't really able to establish a sort of coherent reason for like why why he was so terrified and why if jack nagar is just some body he's using the death of jack nagar does not necessarily should not mean the death of that faceless man given the context of this chapter. If this happened over like two or three books, I might not notice, but this all happens in literally like three or four pages, right? Right. Huh. Do you think he's, uh, how old do you think he is? The faceless man? <laughs> hmm I don't know. When, she, when I, she says, I could name your own father, and he says, my, my sire is long dead. I didn't actually read into the long dead, meaning like... Uh, you know, like uh, cold hands long. I so I don't know. I don't. I don't know if we're supposed to read too much into that. But I, it is a. There is a question for me, because later on, Ruse Bolton comes to town and he's talking about the secret of long life. Yeah. And and so that it sort of brings up the topic of like, uh, you know, is is this a theme that Martin's developing? But, and then you wonder, okay, well, how long do faceless men live? Do they do they live? the normal amount of life, or let's say you do don the visage of another person. Are you now sort of running out the mileage on that vehicle? I would assume they have normal human length lives. They can just change their appearance, but like by changing appearance into old man, 
you're mm-hmm. not necessarily old. It is like there, I think there's a bit of like smoke and mirrors involved there, right? I would imagine so, but I I wonder how. Like sometimes I wonder. It's like smoke and mirrors. How much is this, of this is smoke and mirrors, and how much of this is an actual magical manifestation? Because you know, like let's say Arya, who's let's say you know four foot five. Let's say she dons the visions of someone who's uh, six foot five. Uh, and are people looking up or down, or do they think are they are they down, but they think they're looking up, or how how does this all work? I I don't really get it. Yeah, we we don't have enough information, and then we know magic has gotten more uh, prominent since the rise of dragons. So are they just better at it now than they were ah, few years ago? Point. That's a good point. Do you think that Jack and Hagar is an answer to prayer? No, I think it is. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> I don't think there's an association with the old gods of uh, the, of the first men in Westerons and the Weirwoods and the faceless Well, men. she mentions that if there, if a grumpkin gives you three wishes, wishes you need to be really careful about the third wish. Mm. Yeah, you know, she, she's almost. There's this little bit like in old man stories. She's she's learned that the uh, the third wish, wish is usually the one that gets you. I don't know if that relates at all to this, but it's interesting. Uh, yeah, the last time I was on, I did discuss whether Jack and Agar could be a warg. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wait a second here. I had a guest on uh, Caitlin Ollie. This is a a few months back. And uh, or sorry, Kate Ollie. And she, what she says is that if you look carefully, the people who pray in this world, they're actually something actually does happen. So it's interesting that she's praying for help. He he appears as if out of nowhere. And she even says he was standing as still as one of the trees. So that's interesting that she would confuse him with the tree god or whatever. Um, and then after that, she said, is he an answer? She asked herself that question. Is he an mm. answer to prayer? And this c- recalls when she first meets Jacken, she is, and I think that this is a literary metaphor more than anything. She It says that she was polishing her hates by reciting her list. And I think polishing her hates parallels like you know aladdin polishing the lamp and then the death genie shows up right okay yeah that probably is a literary thing i didn't spot that so i there's something about her making the request immediately he's there and then she wonders is he an answer to prayer i don't I'm just asking the question. I don't. I don't know if I have an answer. He talks a lot about gods, and he's very explicit about not mocking. He does. He seems to be like a mediator for deities, Mm, and he seems particularly terrified of the red god, even he of the fire, or something like that. Yeah, something like that. And then also, like, I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I feel like because Arya saved him and Rorschach Biter from the fire, that seems to be why he owes her not because you took you know you save you snatch lives from any old god it's because you specifically snatched him from the red god mm-hmm. he's more mm-hmm. spiteful or something like that 
Is there something about the rise of dragons where this particular like like the like the fire magic is getting stronger and so the red god is should be feared a bit more? It seems to be the case that the red god is getting more important and the others we don't observe it as much. Now I know in um in the north, I guess we have dire wolves and wargs and stuff. So mm-hmm. maybe the old gods are also becoming more prominent. But we have lots of instances of the red god becoming more prominent between yeah uh, between Beric and Darian, as well as Melisandre's visions and Makoro later on. There's a lot of instances of the red god getting more powerful anyway. So maybe maybe Jack and Akar is just aware of this. Yeah. One thing that he says that I I noted is the gods are not to be mocked. And I noticed that phrase as significant because in the ancient world, the people that you would call atheists were not people that disbelieved in the existence of gods. The people that you would call atheists are people who mock the gods. Okay. So we have several people, you know, that that, that word is, is used, but it's usually of people who like, like are taunting, like, people who are making fun of gods as powerless that that would be someone who would be called an atheist in that world and so it's almost like here we have Arya in discussion with i guess a priestly figure you know if you think of him as sort of like a mediator between the, the gods that are venerated in the house of black and white and then here we have Arya, who's you know, legitimately questioning whether the old gods ever actually helped her father. So for him to use that phrase, it it did catch my attention. Yeah. And then he mentions quite a lot of gods in that list. He starts with something like, he mentions something like um, the god of air and sea, even he in red, and then mentions many other gods after this. So uh, he does seem to have... uh, he does seem very interested in all of them, but I guess we kind of know that from um, as well from the many faced God in when Arya gets to Bravos, they do sort of, mm-hmm. I guess they've shown an awareness of all gods, right? Or they, their view, I guess, is all gods are derived from one, this many faced God or something like this. Mm-hmm. It, it is a little bit unclear. I'm not sure that at this early stage, Martin really has decided the face, what the house of black and white is going to be and what the faceless men actually are. Because Danny meets this guild of uh, weeping men, assassins in Karth, and you can hire them. And there's, there's sort of like a, a sacred guild of assassins who are called like the sorrowful men. Yeah. And they say that they're sorry when they kill you or whatever. Um, and so it makes me wonder like, you don't really have this all worked out. Maybe you repurpose that idea for the faceless men later on. And maybe at this point in the story, the faceless men are connected to Rolor, but he kind of gardened his way out of that idea. Yeah, that, that is possibly true. Um, I put it down to him just being more scared of Rolor rather than, but yeah, I think you mentioned that in, when you discussed the chapter at the time, um, that you didn't think he had fully earned it out. In the- yeah, this would be another indication, maybe, that he doesn't have faceless man theology completely worked out at this point. Yeah, I think that probably is reasonable. There was a good bit of time between that, like, what, nearly 15 years between 
this book and Dance with Dragons. Okay, uh, she's given the coin. The coin uh, eventually uh, will be important to her. And uh, did you? At this point, I, I, I mean, I guess we got to ask. He knows she's a Stark. How does she? How does he know that? And does that make her more valuable to him? Like, why? Why recruit? A ten-year-old girl to come learn the, the the magical arts of the faceless men. Yeah, I mean, so this is the first chapter he reveals he knows exactly who she is. First, he calls her Arya, and then yeah. later on, My Lady of Stark. And then this is this goes back to again, like what was his mission in the first place? Like, I mean, is he? A lot of characters sort of revere the Starks a bit for their association with wargs and the old god in winter so maybe i would believe that his mission could have been just simply to recruit a, a warg recruit a stark even right. to recruit Arya. um I, like i did question this a lot like how does he know Arya is Arya? uh but then there are a few hints like between the fact that uh yaren is hiding her she disguises herself as a boy she shouts winterfell when they're being attacked. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. There are definitely a few indications, but then we also, like he's been in the black cells. He might not really know. Well, he does seem to know a lot of what's going on though. Right. So, um, or if it, he's connected to R'hllor magic, maybe he's seen it in the flame. Yeah. I mean, it, okay. So even if he knows that she is a Stark, how does he know she's a warg? I mean, that to me, that that's the key question. It would make sense. If you're a guild of ass- of assassins, a warg could be valuable to you. Uh, how does he know to associate this particular ten year old girl with this kind of avenue of lost magic? Yeah, and we did discuss this a bit the last time as well, where I I gave two opposing arguments. But <laughs> one is that he doesn't know she's a warg, right? Um, and the faceless men don't know much about wargs. And my head theory is that Soraria doesn't become a faceless man because she's able to keep some of herself by being a warg as opposed to being a true faceless man where you have to be truly become no one mm-hmm. um, but then the other argument is he knows she's a warg because he's also a warg and uh, can identify that somehow alright are you do you feel like we've talked enough about Jack and Hagar do you have th- more to talk about no I think we've probably talked Jack and Hagar to the death of Jack and Hagar um, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean eventually, eventually we I mean we'll have to talk about him again if we ever get to the prologue to of dance right <laughs> to page yeah I mean the only other thing just about him that's very confusing is like why did he hang around after um after Arya effectively rescued them right and then why did he hang around until he complete was it just to complete this debt to Arya? That's what it seems like. But as you said earlier, it, more likely is he's trying to recruit Arya, and that goes back to why and then what's special about her. Why not try and recruit like Rickon? Like, okay, I'm going to um, to the chagrin of many people. I'm going to bring up Deep One's mythology one more time. <laughs> uh, excellent, yeah. <laughs> so interestingly enough, she she wonders maybe if Rorge and Biter were called up from hell 
by Jack and Hagar. Like maybe he's a devil and maybe he brought with him two demons along the way or whatever. Um, maybe she, she's not half wrong. Maybe she's not half wrong here. I think uh, there's some very nice wordplay as well. Cause we both think Biter is a squisher, right? And um... Well, there's no doubt that Biter is a squisher, but I feel like if I get a chance to say Biter is a squisher, I'm always going to take the opportunity <laughs> to say Biter is a squisher. <laughs> and there's this nice sort of wordplay here. And there are and Biter could be demons. He called her from some hell, not men at all. And Biter almost certainly is not a man, right? So, um... All right, so let's talk about that. Because later on, they're trying to free the Northmen from the cells below the King's Spire, I think. that. Oh, no, the Widow, the widow Tower. Yeah. And Rorge seems to, you know, he's got a knife and he's cutting people's throat. Biter, he's using his enormous pale hands to break people's necks. So enormous pair of hands, maybe, maybe. But then, you know, maybe that's interesting. Yeah, all the better for swimming with, right? <laughs> yeah, right. But in addition to that, after they're dead, he's like, sitting on their chest and gnawing on their fingers mm. this is not normal behavior no but every time everything we see of biter is not normal right like um he also picks up the kettles without any like jack and Agar and aria both have to use gloves and are carrying half each and then he's just got one on each hand and he he seems to be he seems to dislike the, the heat but he doesn't seem to, you know he's not like throwing it down because it was a scalding black cauldron. He, his big pale weird hands are able to absorb the heat in some way. So and he eats the flesh of a rabbit in the process or before he picks them up as well. Like, yeah, there's multiple instances of him not having normal uh, human behavior. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, the, the, the teeth and the, you know, just the way he's described early on, uh, he does seem to fit the description of uh, what the people of Westeros call squishers. So, anyway. And somehow, Jack and Agar has some hold over him and Rorge that they will do whatever he asks of them. Yeah. Yeah. Again, Jack and Hagar is just a man of many tricks, I guess. <laughs> Um, all right. Is is there any? I I want to get to Roose Bolton here, but is there anything else about this chapter you want to discuss before we talk about Roose Bolton? Just very briefly, it wouldn't be uh, having me on this without me discussing magic birds at some point. Oh, <laughs> was there? I missed it entirely. Uh, was there a magic bird? Very early on, uh, when Arya's walking through Harrenhal, and then she's, uh, spirits of dead falcons stirred the air with ghostly wings. Ah, okay. This is all just sort of like to pepper in the mystique of Harrenhal. Yep. But, but uh, notably, they do not talk in this chapter. No. So. Uh, unfortunately, that's the next chapter where she imagines the crows talking to the dead maester. Although, I will say this. I thought it was interesting that she's practicing water dancing in the branches. Mm, yeah. She's she's up in the branches, uh, you know, practicing her balance, uh, you know, with a makeshift sword. She's become so good at water dancing. I don't know how long she's in Hall. I don't know how long we're supposed to imagine that she's in Hall, But 
uh, seemingly she does this pretty often. So this, she's continued her serial Pharrell training, but now she's using her balance to balance in uh, on tree branches. Yeah, she seems to be fairly. Um, she should be keeping that up constantly or consistently, maybe. Okay, you want to talk about Roose Bolton? Yeah, the main thing I wanted to ask is why does Arya forget how to talk to a lord? So she forgets to say my lord, but then later on, when um, she's talking to him, she says, yes, your lord, I mean my lord. What's the significance of her getting that wrong? As Okay, so as the daughter of Ned Stark, does she still have to call the liege lords of Ned my lord? I would imagine yes. Yeah, I would imagine yes as well. Uh, so the other question is, like, she's never been very good at courtesy uh, all mm. along, right? This is something that Sansa would absolutely know how to say correctly. Uh, when when Sansa was learning all of that courtesy, Arya was out playing in the mud with Micah or whatever, running mm. through the stables, Arya underfoot, that kind of thing. So that's one idea. Another idea is that maybe she is, maybe she's trying to pretend to be lowborn and stupid to, so that people underestimate her. Yeah, that is possible. That or just emotional scarring from the hell she's been through for the last few weeks or months. But yeah, I do yeah, think it's like, it is you know, an odd thing. It is an odd thing uh, to to for her not to know that how to do that correctly. But okay, so here's my question. Does Roose Bolton make her immediately? Does he know immediately that this is Arya Stark? No. Do you think? I don't think he ever does. Do you think? I he think does? he does. Yeah. Oh. And he, here's what I would say. He looks at her, studies her, shows an interest in this little girl, right? And says, "How old are you?" And I think he's at that point realizing, oh, this is Ar- these idiots. They had Arya Stark here all along. This is obviously Arya Stark. I can tell by the face of this person that this is a Stark. And this girl is exactly the same age as Arya Stark would be. And then he says, do you like animals? Why does he say that? Why does he say, do you like animals? And she says, I like some. And then he says, but not lions or men, of course. This is this is veiled language. Like you're a wolf girl, you're clearly not a southern girl, right? I I, I mean that's how I read it. Well, I assume the animals thing was because he then asks, uh, "How do you feel about leeches?" Right? Ah, uh, yeah. Um, of course he that's does. where I was going with that. I, I thought the reasons I thought he never figured it out is because in the next chapter she's sort of privy to some discussion, which I think if he knew he had her he would be careful about what information he reveals to her because in the next chapter, he already brings his plan to sort of foil Rob a bit by sending Robert Glover to Duskendale. Um, you think he'd be more careful yeah, if, if, he, he, had if he knew Arya. for sure that it was, it was Arya? Yeah, and then there's the gamble of using is this, um, Jane Poole as Arya later on if mm. he knows Arya is still actually out there. I mean, I mean, this is... I wouldn't put it past him for sure, no, well, but yes. that, that is, it is a good point that he seems to be loose, a little bit loose lipped. You don't imagine Roose Bolton as someone who is, a uh, who, who doesn't exercise that kind of caution. Right. So, mm. 
Maybe so. Maybe so. I mean, I, I, that's kind of how I read it, but certainly the text does not give any indication, any direct indication that he has made her for a Stark. Yeah, I assumed he never knew, but um, I have to reread the next chapter again now and uh, see if there's any more obvious things that would potentially uh-huh. give it away. Because she does talk to him some point in the next chapter, and he's quite annoyed with her for even speaking on a turn. Yeah, right. I kind of thought that would give him more indication of who it might be, but he doesn't seem to show much. Also, he doesn't plan to keep her. You'd think if he knew his area, he'd keep her with him, whereas he plans to leave Hall and leave her with Fargo Holt. Right. She'd be like a very like he's already planning betraying Rob, so she's a very valuable hostage. Or keep him, keep her close. Exactly. Yeah. Keep her yeah, close yeah. and keep up the act. That's what I would imagine he would have done. Well, you make a good case. Um, do you think that Roose Bolton is a vampire? I think there's a surprising amount of similarities between uh, Faceless Men and what Roose Bolton is doing that I hadn't really caught before. I guess that's more something to discuss in the next chapter with the leeches. Um, he just mentioned the long life, and you mentioned that earlier. Like, is that really connected to possibly face men, faceless men living a very long life? But also, the idea like flaying and skin changing don't seem that dissimilar. So maybe yeah. faceless men do live a long time, and Riz Bolton is trying to uh, carry on that kind of thing. I don't think he's a literal vampire, but I think he is trying to use some kind of blood magic to lengthen his life. Interesting. So the people who like this theory, and there's there's a number of iterations of this theory for sure, but the people who like this theory like it because the legacy of Harrenhal is... Uh, very uh, vampish. Mm. And so you've got several characters who seem to have been using blood magic to prolong their life. Um, why does Roose Bolton want to take Harrenhal? Uh, maybe that's why he's there in the first place. Cause he's trying to, to attain some kind of vampirish knowledge. Yeah, I agree with that. And again, in the next chapter, I don't want to go too much in the next chapter, but he is burning a book, which surely he finds in Harrenhal, right? So um, uh-huh. I, I imagine he is there for a very specific reason. That's not he's got the information Rob's that house. he needs, and now yeah, he's he's uh, burning it so no one else can read it. Yeah. That's uh, my theory, the other, the other uh, theory about Roose Bolton that I like is that maybe he is the Night King. <laughs> seen that as well. I yeah, don't buy it yet. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the the weird everyone who meets him notices his weird pale eyes. Uh but I don't know if that's enough. Um anyway. We don't have enough information about the Night King other than there was thirteenth Lord Commander in the book, do we? It's more a, it's a little bit more of a show thing, I suppose, but uh, Yeah, no, there yeah, there, there's the mythology. There's yeah. a, there's a particular uh, mythology around that, but of course, um, M- Martin likes to have the the myths that no one believes anymore. It's true. Yeah, find their way to the presence in some way. So. And he also likes to have the option, I think, to leave these open in case he wants to use it later. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, notable introductions: uh, Pink Eye, who's also called Mebel, <laughs> uh, Ben Blackthumb. Uh, we hear about for the first time Shagwell the Fool and his talking heads uh, introducing this chapter 
and the phrase Velar Margulis uh, is first uttered in this chapter. Um, notable show differences. Basically, the three deaths are much different. Although, you do have Arya say the name Jack and Hagar to try to gain some leverage over him. And, but in the show, she tries to use that to escape. You promised you'd help me. That was not promised, lovely girl. Only death. There must be others. Give a name, any name. And you killed them. Anybody. By the seven new gods and the old gods beyond counting, I swear it. All right. Jack and Hagar. Hagar gives a man his own name? That's right. Gods are not mocked. This is no joking thing. I'm not joking. Man can go kill himself. Unname me. No. Please. I'll unname you. Thank you. If you help me and my friends escape. This would require more than one life. This is not part of our bargain. Fine. Jack and Hagar. A girl lacks honor. If I do this thing, a girl must obey. A girl will obey. A girl and her friends will walk through the gate at midnight. Notable departures. Well, a lot of people die in this chapter. Um, eventually... See here, who do, 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 do we have any named characters that die in this chapter? Kind of Emery Lorch, at least he's uh thrown in with the bear. He's yeah, right. So, we, I guess, we're gonna say goodbye to Emery Lorch off page. Mm. Uh, but yes, he he is uh drug around naked and then end up he ends up getting thrown in with the bear. And Arya thinks it's uh maybe a fitting ending because the bear is black, just like Yorin's clothing. Black. Yeah. Nice bit of closure for that for Amory Norch. Does Arya waste all her wishes? Is is that is, is that what we're we've decided that Arya wastes every single wish? I think they're all effectively wasted. Yes, unfortunately. I mean, it was good to get rid of Chiswick. He was awful, but it would have been better to get rid of the mountain. Yeah, yeah, or Tywin, or you know, Joffrey. Yes, yeah, someone someone of note, but you know. This made the Heron Hall plot uh, have a bit of intrigue, right? A lot of intrigue, yeah. And you also have no idea where it's going when you first read it. I think I wouldn't have thought that she wasted all of them on my first read, but now going back and the lack of consequences of those. Well, and it does show a bit of her development because, you know, she thought these first two wishes were selfish. I need to do something to help Rob's cause, which she does. Right? Yeah. She thinks I can free a hundred Northmen and deliver Harrenhal to the North. If I can just get this faceless man to help me do it. And so, you know, she has no idea uh, what's going to happen with Roos Bolton. Right. So she's mm-hmm. trying to do something for her brother 
even though it doesn't really end up helping out. Mm. Indeed. It's a great chapter. It's packed, action-packed chapter. Thank you for helping me cover it. It was a pleasure, as always. And now, Throwback Thursday with comic Steve Osborne. I'm an adventurous eater, Steve. Uh, I, w- I will uh, try new things. Would you try lamprey pie? <laughs> I'll tell you what, hot pie is adventurous, too, and I'll tell you why. I'll go on. Uh, he's suggesting grinding the stone of the cherry. Right, right. And sprinkling it on the crust of the pie. And this is actually a debate in the world of culinary science. Because cherry pits do indeed have an enzyme that can become cyanide. Mm -hmm. So they can be a little bit poisonous. I don't think that they're poisonous enough to do any real damage to you. And I think that you can cook all the poison out. Okay. But I've gone to a few blogs. And I've gone to bonappetit.com. And uh, it seems to me that uh, that hot pie is in the right. You can cook with the pits of cherries. See, hot pie is just sort of considered a throwaway. And he's like, oh, he's just got this big appetite. But he's a little bit of a gourmand. <laughs> he really is. He's a genius that will not be appreciated in his time. No. Which is what I, that, that's what kind of got me. I'm looking at the, like, this is the unsavory tone of this entire area and the awful things they said to Aria and just, in general, it's just, it's just mucky. Yet hot pie just seems like, like, what is, what makes hot pie so charming that he could just get a, I mean, it, is it, it, is he, is he just keeping these, these ne'er-do-wells just flush with pie and they're just like, look, I mean, he hasn't worked like an hour. Man, he does this thing with the cherry stones. I don't even care if it'd kill me, it's delightful.